today's passage is Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A, war a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Seat this morning. I'm uh, going to start with an assertion that I'm pretty sure is not like, uh, it's not something that you haven't heard uh, about, maybe even recently, but it is something that I think is on our minds, uh, and that is, is that people are kind of exhausted from distrust. Uh, now, I don't think that that's something that is only uniquely true about this time in history. I think that people are kind of exhausted from distrust, uh, really, because it's a part of the human condition. It's not something that is unique to uh, 2022. It's something that we have always lived with, and it's something that is exhausting. Uh, things that uh, bring deceit into our lives, things that cause us to distrust, weary the soul. But, but I do think that at this point in time that there are some specific things that I think that we could point to. I think that there are large swaths in corners of our society of people that have begun distrusting uh, medical institutions. Uh, maybe they've heard something that, uh, you know, just in the, uh, in the mix of trying to react to a novel disease uh, that, uh, that, they, that didn't end up being true. And so just in uh, the hearts of people, there's developed a certain amount of distrust. Now, I don't think that that's unique just because of the pandemic. I think that we've seen uh, over the last uh, many years, maybe even kind of a revival of uh, people finding alternate ways in medicine. And, and that is, in some ways, an expression of distrust in in maybe medical institutions. I'm not making a comment on that. I'm just observing that maybe alongside of you. Uh, I think that uh, this is certainly not unique, but you would uh, for sure have seen a deterioration, even one that you can uh, survey and, and, and statistically find in people of a distrust for media. Uh, they've, they've maybe gone to different sources of media. They've discovered what they uh, perceive to be something that is not trustworthy there. And there's just been a dismantling, a deterioration of trust in, in what I think uh, in the past has maybe been a place where people put outsized trust. I think that there are other institutions uh, economically that, uh, you know, made promises to humanity, whether it's uh, capitalism or communism, or socialism, or all these different types of economic models that when they are tried, people uh, uh, put their trust in them in some way, shape, or form, and then uh, when they fail to deliver, as uh, sinful humanity is wont to do, uh, there's going to be a certain amount of distrust in that, a desire to find new ways, new things to uh, actually uh, find ways of propping up our economic systems. I think about political institutions are kind of at an all-time low. Uh, you know, uh, our Congress has never enjoyed uh, high and mighty support and trust, but uh, for certain right now, our elected representatives, I think, you know, uh, if you were to, I didn't consult the surveys, but there's no way that trust in Congress is over 15%. It's historically been around there. I think it's probably lower. Uh, to which my only question would be, who are the like 10% that still have like a certain amount of trust? 
Uh, we, we experience some level of distrust in a lot of different areas. In fact, uh, you can find this in surveys. I've heard that the only one that's kind of uh, ridden out time, an institution that still has our trust, is actually the military. A lot of uh, people in the West still have some level of trust in uh, military institutions, but even that seems to be waning. So it seems to be a particularly restless time, a time that lacks peace. There's a historian that I really like named Stephen Cockin that says that disagreement is not something that's novel. In fact, uh, disagreement in a democracy is uh, something that is a feature. It's not a bug. People are supposed to disagree. People are supposed to have competing ideas and to discuss it. But what he does say is uh, more... Uh, new is the demonization that's happening in the midst of the distrust. There's always a certain amount of disagreement, but maybe distrust is resulting in some amount of demonization. You're not a part of my tribe. You're not a part of my thought process. Therefore, you are a bad thing, a bad person. So what we see is, is that there is a slippery slope, as it were. There's deception that leads to a social distrust. There's a social distrust that leads to social disintegration. When you get social disintegration, you get this hyper-individualization. People thinking of themselves only and primarily as individuals to the extent that they're attached to anybody outside of them. It's only a few very small people that happen to agree with them quite a lot. And what you're doing in the midst of that is allowing for distrust to pulverize society, civilization into a fine powder that can be blown away because there's nothing holding it together. So, so there, is, there are actual effects of distrust. It's a real thing that has real consequences for us. And what I think it's resulted in, in our day and age, if you want to know what I personally think is the primary problem that we have to solve for, it's a sense of nihilism. It's a sense of meaninglessness. When you allow for distrust to enter into uh, social distrust and social disintegration, into hyper-individualism, you are going to end up with a certain amount of nihilism meaninglessness actually mixed in to our society and culture. So the question for us is not how is that in the world, but how Christians ought to respond. How are we to respond? We can take a look at that just like everybody else. We can hold up a magnifying glass. We can enunciate that as a problem. But really and honestly, in this room, we are to decide how we are to respond to it. How do we live in a world of deception and distrust and disintegration? And I've got a single word answer for what we believe is the answer to that. When you look at the pages of scripture, what I think is going to be the answer to that. And you, you, I think even when I say it, you're going to be like, uh, it sounds like a Christian answer, but I'm not sure that it's true. And I want to take the next several weeks to try to prove it to you. What is the Christian's response to this distrust? It's worship. It's worship. We are to worship, and we're to invite others into that worship. The Westminster Catechism, the, the uh, first question of it is, what is the chief end of man? What, what is it that is man's goal? What is his purpose? What is his meaning? If we identify meaninglessness as a primary problem in our society, maybe we should so know something about man's meaning, and it is this. It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What is the chief end of man? It is to 
glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's something that is so simple you can teach it to a child, but you can explore it for all of your life and then into eternity and never come to the end of it. What I love is, is that embodied in that, that the chief end of man really at the end of the day is to worship, glorify, enjoy. We are to worship. We are to be a worshiping people. And what Psalm 120, the one that we just read, the one that we're going to be covering today, invites us to do is for God's people to get out of exile and up into Jerusalem to worship. I'm going to explain that a little bit more. I know that that's a little bit cryptic. But if we listen closely to this psalm, what we will hear is this good news, and that is that God delivers. God delivers those who are distressed from the death of deceit. God delivers the distressed from the death of deceit. And we've got to do some work in order to get there this morning. We've got to understand that uh, we are dwelling among deceivers. That's kind of the, the foundational point of this psalm is that we are dwelling amongst deceivers. But then not that we are just dwelling among them, but that we are distressed by deceit. So we were dwelling among deceivers, but we're distressed by the deceit. And finally, we will discuss that we are delivered from deception. That's where all of this is aimed this morning. But, but here's the truth. We can't just drop into the middle of Psalms without doing a little bit of context. But giving Psalms some amount of context really could take this entire morning. Uh, we could uh, really explore that. So what I'm planning on doing, because these Psalms are so varied as we go along, we'll take one Psalm at a time, Psalm 120, Psalm 121, and so forth. I invite you to read through those with me. And as they are varied, we're going to give context as we kind of go along. But what I do want to do is kind of give you a brief overarching idea of what the Psalms are, because I think we've got a lot of misperceptions about it. Psalm Psalms is a library of 150 Hebrew poems and psalms and prayers. It it is something that if you were to read it from front to back, you uh, will notice that there is actually not just an individual nature to it, but that there is a rhythm to it. There is a cadence to it. There is a formality to it. There are actually five books in the book of Psalms. Uh, there is an intro and a conclusion at the very end, uh, beginning and end. The first two uh, really talk about the Torah and then talk about this coming Messiah that's going to come. And, and really throughout all of the Psalms, all 150 of them, there is going to be this context of Torah, God's word, his teaching, and then also a hopeful look into the future at the coming of the Messiah. Those are the two themes that weave themselves all the way through all five. Books. But then at the very end, you have this conclusion of five praise psalms. So there are these five praise psalms that we read often for the calls to worship because they are something that actually calls and enlivens worship in God's people. So in these five books, we actually see that there are two other things that are kind of themes throughout the psalms. There are two types of psalms, generally speaking, that are in the psalms. One is a psalm of lament. The other is a psalm of praise. I want to define that very quickly. The psalms of lament draw attention to what is wrong in the world and ask God to do something about it. So so the psalms are not uh, what you would think that they are. 
these kind of like high and mighty, elevated, unrealistic looks at life. No, 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 no. They are very realistic. In fact, sometimes they are painfully, they are honestly at very many times uh, things that we just go, I don't even know that you can say those kinds of things, but God does allow for his psalmist to say these kinds of things. There's even a place in scripture where uh, David himself even says that he might commit suicide if God does not reveal himself to him. Now, is that right? No, but it is a very realistic look at the human condition, and it is tragic. It is a lament. So, so Psalms of Lament are going to do something. They are going to draw attention to sin and to twistedness in creation. They're going to highlight what is wrong, and they're going to appeal to God. And this is an appropriate response of the heart to the evil that is in this world. But there aren't only Psalms of Lament. There are also Psalms of Praise. These Psalms are filled with joy and celebration. They draw attention to what is good in the world. They retell the stories that God is writing, and they celebrate who he is and how he is moving, and they give thanks to God for all that is good and all that he is doing in the lives of the people that he loves and in this world that he is redeeming. And one thing that you wouldn't notice unless you read it from beginning to end is that you're going to see that there is uh, far more psalms of lament at the beginning of the book than there are at the end of the book. That doesn't mean that there aren't psalms of lament at the end of the book. We're actually going to take a look at one today. It's one of the reasons why we're going through this amount of detail for it. But you will notice as you read along that there are far fewer psalms of lament at the end. And there is something really profound about that. That, that as we go along learning about God's teaching and his Torah, as we learn about this messianic kingdom, we're going to have created in us a tension that is expectant of a great Messiah who comes and cures all things and who is worthy to be praised. So we're going to feel this tension given the tragic state of our world, but we're not to ignore the pain in our lives. Rather, we're to have a biblical faith and hopefulness in the Messiah who comes to redeem all things. And that's where we find ourselves in the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, and we're going to take them one at a time. And what they were intended to do was move people into worship. They were intended to move people up into worship, get out of where you are and go up to worship. Now, we don't know precisely how these psalms were always used, but there is a lot of speculation that, um, that exiles who were outside of Jerusalem, people that were commanded to come back for feasts, uh, for, for uh, times of prayer, for uh, festivals in the city of Jerusalem, for those who are called to come back to the temple and to worship, for those who are called to go and make sacrifices for their sin, these psalms would have served as something to initiate that process towards worship as they elevated, literally ascended into the city of Jerusalem, which was up on a hill. So they're called the psalms of ascent because they literally go up. You, you start in a lowly place and you go through the ascension process into worship. So what we have decided to name this series is Psalms of Ascent, Journey to Jerusalem. 
Now that bears out a little bit of explanation. I'm really excited about getting to explore that with you this morning. But what what we need to understand at a very base level is that these psalms were used to ascend into worship. Whether the Jews used them on the 12 steps into the uh, temple or whether you were to sing them on your way to the temple, you lived in Jerusalem, whatever you were doing, these were meant to move you into worship. So what we're going to find is, is that there's a lot of variety here. You would expect something that's moving you into worship to be happy all the time and moving you into higher and higher degrees of happiness and joy, but that's not the case. There's a lot of variety here. We're, over the next few weeks, going to, and I want you to pay attention to these themes because I hope that they actually meet you in the questions and desires of your heart. We're going to be talking about promise and affliction. We're going to be talking about help and fear, peace and anxiety, judgment and providence. And finally, we're going to be talking about mercy, 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 and the security that we have in our great Messiah. So that's what we're doing. As we seek a revival of joyful worship here at City Church, we're going to be moving through the Psalms of Ascent that give us robust tools as we climb the mountain of worship. They're not going to be monolithic. They're going to be different kinds of tools for us to take out and to move into worship. So here's the question that I want for you to have overarchingly as we go through the next 14 weeks is, what is the state of your worship? Do you want to ascend in worship? Or are you quite happy and comfortable where you're at? But I also want you to hear my invitation to come on the journey to Jerusalem. That's what we're after. So Here's the first point from the text this morning. I know that that's a lot of context, got to get through some of that. So some of this actually makes sense because we're going into a, uh, a psalm that is not all that like happy-go-lucky. It is a psalm, a little bit of lament. It says this, that we are dwelling among deceivers. I want you to skip down to the bottom of this text. It says in verse 5 here, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. So the first point that we're deriving out of the text this morning, that we're discovering in the text, is that we dwell among deceivers. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach. This was a place far away from Jerusalem. Woe to me that I journey in the place of uh, Kedar. That's a place far away from Jerusalem and the other place. So we don't get the sense that this is a person that was in exile in one place, but a person that recognizes that something about this world is not given, not primed for worship. We find a psalmist that is lamenting his sojourning and his dwelling away from Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Because at this time, the temple was there in Jerusalem, the center of worship, the place where that happened, the place in their minds where it was, that's where praise and honor and glory is given. That's where sacrifices are made. That's where prayers are prayed is there in Jerusalem. But we don't need to take this as David, David, we don't know that David wrote this song, that that David was writing this in the midst of being uh, uh, chased around. Uh, fear for his life, that he was outside of the city. We don't need to take it as Jews who were in exile wanting to come back. What we need to take this as is a lamenting of the brokenness in the world and specifically its inhospitality to worship. The world is not a place that is conducive for worship in all circumstances. 
And that's where this psalm picks up. He says, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. And I wonder if you've ever felt something like this. Maybe not that. Maybe it's not that you have felt in this world as though you are constantly around hateful, unpeaceful people. Maybe that's not your experience. But I wonder if you've ever felt a little out of place in this world, as though your worship is not completely welcome, as though you are a person who exists as a part of this world, but not completely joined in. This is not your place. The psalmist would agree with you. If you've ever thought, I don't really belong here, psalms are uh, a lot of times uneasy for modern Christians because it talks in these kind of ways. In fact, here's, uh, if you'll allow me to be so bold, I will say that not y'all, that we have made friends with the world to where reading through the Psalms where we hear David declare that he has enemies seems a little unchristian, seems a little like somebody who is godless. No, God loves the world. That's why he gave his only begotten son was to bring the world back to himself. So where did David miss the boat? Where did this psalmist miss the boat? Is he really there at his house, beginning on this journey to Jerusalem, declaring how much he dislikes his neighbors? Is that what's going on here? I don't think that it is. I don't think that this is like a pessimistic, ugly person declaring to his neighbors how much he dislikes them or how dishonest they are. I think what he's doing is just recognizing something in this world that we would all do well to align ourselves with. Psalms are a little uneasy for the modern Christian. When David talks about his enemies and asks God to crush them in Psalm 52, uh, 5, when he says that uh, God will break you down forever. He's talking about like sending people to hell. He's saying God will break you down forever. And then he goes even farther. He says that the righteous shall laugh at him saying, see what comes of the man who does not put his trust in God. Anybody feel a little uncomfortable with that kind of language? Anybody wonder, anybody feel the need to like defend the world a little bit? I'll be honest with you, I do from time to time. I hear a lot of Christians really defending uh, culture. Culture is not something that is monolithic. There are many parts of culture, but we would actually, I think, do well to submit to God's word and recognize that the world is a broken place filled with deception and if we could just enunciate, if we could say what this passage is saying, is that we all live, we dwell among deceivers. Christians must see the world as it is. It is corrupted by deceitful and slanderous people, and we do well to say so. Does that offend sensibilities? Does it make you feel uneasy? Hey, we've got some people. I, I brought my mom this morning. Like, don't, don't say something like that. It sounds terrible. It sounds uh, 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 really terrifying to people that are not. But here's the key. I think that people feel it. They can attach it back. Even if they are non-believers, they can attach it back to the distrust that they are feeling in our society right now. We all have categories. We, don't, we just don't like it when pastors say it or when the Bible says it. But, but here's the key to really understanding this. It's not just that we should go out and start bludgeoning people to death with this heavy-handedness. What I think is actually happening here is that we need to see that the world 
also as God wants it and desires for it to be. Let me show you this in uh, the passage. Verse 7, the psalmist declares, I am for peace. Now, where does he get that idea? Did he just think that up? Did he think that it was a good idea? No, it's because he follows a God of peace that wants peace for the nations. So we can hold two truths in our hands at the same time. We can say, yes, there's deceit in this world, and from the ground up, the systems and structures have uh, terrible deceit, distrustworthiness in them, and at the same time go, God has great desires for trust, great desires for redemption. We are for peace. So if you come across a Christian that just has that glint in their eye that says, the world is terrible, it's bad, it's irredeemable. That is an anti-gospel. The world is not redeemable. God did not declare its uh, unredeemableness over this world. In fact, what he did was he sent his son to redeem the world. We are a people of peace. We cannot delight in the world. We cannot want for war. We cannot want for the death of deceit. We cannot want for destruction. We want for peace. We want for truth. That's how Christians respond. But we are not just dwelling among deceivers. We are also distressed by deceit. Verse 1, he says this, In my distress I called to the Lord. What, What did he ask for when he called out to the Lord? In my distress, I called out to the Lord, deliver me from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. For now, we experience distress in this world as a result of lies that we are assailed with every single day. And the psalmist is dismissed because he sees, sorry, is distressed because he sees death by deceit, war of words. He sees the sin of slander all around him, and he's not indifferent to it. He's distressed by it. So so here's the question that I have for you. Are you distressed by deceit? Are you, as a Christian, being remade always into the image of Christ, are you distressed by the distrust, by the uh, unevenness, the injustice, the terrible lies, the slander that is in this world? Are you distressed? He's distressed. He's exhausted, he's restless, just like I think the people alongside of us are, and he longs for peace and truth and social trust and social integration. What he's wanting is heaven on earth. He's wanting worship in these people. So here's the questions that I have for you this morning. Have you ever been lied to in a way that causes your soul to retreat from a relationship? Somebody said a lie about you, and you just couldn't be friends with them anymore. You didn't necessarily tell them so. You just retreated a little bit. You pulled back from that relationship. Maybe it was a relationship with a family member or a friend. Maybe your uh, story of coming into faith is you grew up in a non-Christian home. You were happily integrated with the world. You came to know Jesus, and then you lost all of your Christian, or, uh, sorry, lost all of your non-believing friends. And there was just uh, these lies that started being spread about you. Somebody said uh, things that just were not true, and you retreated from those relationships. I wonder if, uh, if at some level, deceit has led to distress in your life. I wonder if you've ever been lied about, so not lied to in a way that caused you distress, but been lied about that caused you irreparable harm to your reputation. 
In this verse, it actually says that those things are like slings and arrows and burning coals that are burning you up. Has anybody ever lied about you in a way that caused you reputational harm? I was reading something uh, earlier this work that uh, week that uh, at work that uh, describes the way that men and women are aggressive. We, we like in our society to think that men are more aggressive than women, but that actually doesn't bear itself out. Social scientists have found out that men and women are pretty much equally aggressive. We just display it in very different ways. If somebody comes to me and uh, gossips about me or slanders me, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't go that deep. But one thing that I do notice as a guy is, is that uh, there's always, this is going really deep, but maybe pretty subconscious, but if you ever notice a guy that like just seems violent, it just seems unpredictable, little chaotic, little messy, it's almost like there's this sense of distance because that person can't be trusted, they're a little violent. Uh, there's this threat of like imposingness. There's an aggression. For, for women, it's totally different. It's, uh, it's, it's gossip. It's slander. It's, it's innuendos about uh, promiscuity. It's these kinds of things that women will use. There's some really horrible ways to like undermine the reputations of people out there. So I just wonder, have you ever been lied about in a way that people still think that that's something that you did or somebody that you are? or a place that you went. You've never been able to correct it, but you know that that deceit, that distrust created in you a lot of distress. Have you ever been in an environment, this is maybe a little bit more towards the point of the psalm, have you ever been in an environment where people are living a lie? Like, it's just baked in. It's in the air. It's like people don't really acknowledge it, but like we're just lying about who we are, what we're doing, what we're saying that we're doing. Have you ever been in a place like that? There's this really, really outstanding work called the Gulag Archipelago. And, and it's just a, it's like literally just a chronicling of what it was like to live in Soviet Russia. So what it was like to live under communism. And, and the theme throughout this book is, is that it was terrible because one of, the, uh, the, one of the basic things that communism really demanded of people is people to live outwardly lies that they were being told to always lie about. So you would have Jews that would go home and would tell their uh, children, no, 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 we don't believe that. But if you go to school, you need to say these kinds of things to keep us from being murdered. Like, you know, from keeping us from being sent to Siberia and for dying and freezing to death. You know, no, that's not most of our experience. <laughs> most of us didn't grow up in uh, Soviet Russia, I dare say all. But for those of us who maybe know something about this, where we're in a culture that puts on airs, like we're just trying to build ourselves up, and we live with the lies that people tell about themselves and about you every single day, and we build other people up in their lives. Sometimes we're, uh, we're maybe gifted with encouragement, but we actually twist it into uh, deceiving ourselves and other people by just saying lies about other people. I wonder if you've ever been a part of just a toxic culture that knew that something was wrong, but nobody would say anything about it. They just wouldn't go about the process of just calling sin, sin. So we all kind of interact in a way of like just deceiving ourselves and other people. 
I see this, this is not going to be couth, but uh, I've seen this a lot actually, um, uh, I've spent a lot of time overseas, and it, it just seems like the more and more that a uh, community drifts into poverty and people are just scrapping together, the, the more people will, especially to outsiders, lie to them. To, to sell something or to, uh, to, get, to get something away from them, to cheat or whatever else. That's not, that's not like a popular thing to say, but I will tell you, I, I literally, I have a friend right now that lives overseas and I ask, hey, what's the, if you were to ask him here today, like, what is the hardest thing about leaving, living overseas? He'd just say, everybody lies to me. I can't go to the store without somebody just lying to me all the time. And, and he expresses how hard and difficult that is just to live in a cohesive, loving way with people that are deceptive. It's hard. We all, I think, have lived in the midst of it. The psalmist, what he is saying is, is that there is something corruptive, acidic, toxic, that the effect of it, of deception, is catastrophic to the human heart. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Why? Because lying lips and deceitful tongues burn houses and cities of trust that it took years to build in a matter of moments. That's what deception does. Lying lips and deceitful tongues will undermine and disintegrate and destroy trust wherever it is. And the psalmist is distressed by the deceit, not because it is what was happening to him, but because it, was, it is always what happens. I, I want for us to uh, get back to present day, okay? So it's easy for us to go, that was his experience, that's not my experience. That's not true. That's all of our experience for all of time. How do we know this? The sinful serpent slithered his way into a garden with cursed lies. You will not surely die. And, and he lies there to Eve, and Eve takes the fruit and gives it to Adam. And then when uh, God has uh, given this command and goes and tries to just enjoin himself with Adam and Eve, they're, uh, they're naked and they're afraid and they're hiding from him, and he calls out to them. And when they come to him, what do they say? They say, we were hiding because we were naked. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the forbidden fruit? And Adam says this, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit of the tree of life, and I ate it. And then he turns to Eve and he says, what is this that you've done? And she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then they were put out of the garden. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground, and he drove the man out, and there was great distress. Do you see that it's not just what happens, it's what always happens. Deceit comes in, it destroys, dismantles anything that is integral to trust, and it leaves us in distress. So the road up the mountain to worship starts by recognizing that we are first dwelling among deceivers and that that distresses us. But what we need to get to is to the place where we can see that we are delivered from deception. So, so let us ask the question this morning, what do we do? What do we do about all of this? In verse 1, we've already covered it, but it answers that very question. It says, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. Christians are to certainly call out for the Lord. 
Are you experiencing distress? Are you dwelling in a world that just leaves you feeling left out, affected by sin, deceived? Call out to the Lord. Do you call out to the Lord? The Psalms are literally a book of prayer, a book of conversation with God. So here's my question for you. Do you call? The psalmist says that he calls out to the Lord and he answers him. Do you make that call? What is the shape? What is the texture? What is the contours of your call with God? And let me ask you this. Does it sound like this? Or does it sound just only like praise psalms? Does it only sound like thanksgiving psalms? Does it only sound like songs of asking for stuff? Or does it sound like calling out to the Lord amidst distress? Do you know that you're allowed to do that? I mean, it's an amazing truth that is buried in so many of these psalms is you can express your heart to the Lord. You can call out to Him. Do you do it? Do you know that He wants to hear from you? How do we deal with this? How do we know that we are delivered from deception first? We call out to the Lord. But then it says that he does something very specific when he calls out to him. He's asking for something very specific. Verse 2, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What he's asking for is a deliverance from deception. I've looked around me. I long to go up to you in worship, but I need deliverance. I need to get out of here and go up to you. I'm stuck in a world that worships money and then lies about it, that worships sex and manipulates to get it, that worships power and coerces others to give it to them, that wants prestige so it slanders others. But I think that the Psalms actually run deeper than just merely pointing outward. The psalmist recognizes the thread of, the, of deception that runs through his own heart and cries out to God saying, deliver me, O Lord, from the den of my own deceit. I am deceived and I long for peace. I long for worship. I think that that's what's going on here. I don't think that he's merely pointing to the city that he lives in exile in or that he's sojourning in. I think that what he recognizes is, is that there is an effect of the surrounding culture on him and he doesn't want to be there. He wants to be in God's arms. He wants to be worshiping. He wants to be there with him, asking uh, for forgiveness of sins and offering sacrifices for them. He wants to go up the mountain of worship, but he knows that it's not only the culture around him, that it's his own heart. And he says, deliver me, O Lord, from the den of deceit that I have created. So so here's the questions that I want to ask you this morning. I want you to write them down. I want you to think about them. Uh, To the extent that you can this week in your discipleship groups, I want you to ask these questions and talk about them openly and honestly. What lies distress you? What lies distress you? They can be the lies that you believe in your own heart. They can be the lies that you were told by your parents. They can be the lies that you experience every time that you turn on your phone or that you read a book. What are the lies that distress your heart? The second question is this, what what deception needs do you need deliverance from? 
What is it that, that's just something that you know is a lie, but you believe it, and you just need to be delivered from it? You, you need to ask God, listen, I, I believe this horrible lie about myself or others, and I just need you to deliver me from it and expect in some way that he will answer you in the midst of those prayer. What deceptions decrease your worship? Now, now here's the truth. I, I, can, I can guess at what those are. We could go through a long list of what those are. But what I'd rather you do in application of this psalm is to think on it. And talk with your spouse. Talk with a friend. Talk with your discipleship group. Talk with a trusted Christian friend. Look and pour over this psalm and ask those kinds of questions. Now, here's the question that I want to ask in uh, summing all of this up. Why would the psalmist start here? Why would whoever collected these in the power of the Spirit start this ascent into worship here? What, what, I mean, if you were writing a book of ascending into worship, would you have started in this place? I wouldn't. A lot of the commentators that I was reading this week on this psalm, they wouldn't have started here. They think that it's a little perplexing. In fact, the only person that said that makes sense is Sawyer. I was talking with her about it. She's like, that totally makes sense. You definitely got to start there. I don't know. This is the first psalm on a road towards worship, on a road towards feast and festival, on the road towards temple sacrifice, on the road to Jerusalem. As you journey to Jerusalem, this is where it started, God and his providence. But, but here's the truth. We're not the only ones who will take this road. There are many Jews before us, but there was one named Jesus. I, I want for you to turn, if you will, over to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read something as Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem, what he had to say when he came into view of Jerusalem. And this is where we're really going to plant our feet this morning. So I want you to read with me Luke 19, starting in verse 41. And when he draw near and saw the city, that's Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for what? For peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you. When your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Where is the gospel in that? For, for years, Jews would ascend to Jerusalem. They would go to a place of worship. Now, I know very few Christians who see it as a duty to go to the physical city of Jerusalem, to go there to worship. And, and for someone who said that it was their duty, I'd have a lot of questions because that physical city there is not the place where worship is. And I think that Jesus tells us that. Jesus journeys to Jerusalem and worship is the purpose of his journey, but not for him, for you. The purpose of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem was so that you might worship. And he, and he gets there and he sees the view of Jerusalem. 
this place that is supposed to be for peace. And he says, oh, would that you, even you, knew this day the things that make for peace. But you do not know. That's what he's saying. You don't know because you did not know the time of your visitation. He said, would that you know for the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. They were deceived, as it were. The Jews didn't know that the time for worship had come. The person of worship had come. The one, the Messiah who needed, who we needed to worship would come. Here's what we need to know. We do not need to have it hidden from our eyes. Indeed, it is not. We do know the things that make for peace. They are Jesus. His crucifixion on the cross. His resurrection from the grave. His promise of a future return. You see, apart from the gospel, we are all deceived and need someone who is undeceived to come and make peace for us. Where is the gospel in all of this? Where is it? I'll give it to you in one line, and then we'll pray. God delivers the distressed from the death of deceit. He delivers those who are distressed by deceit by delivering Jesus into the distress of death through the deception of Judas, of the crowds that wanted to crucify, who shouted crucify, of of Pilate, indeed of all humanity, including us. Our deception crucified Jesus to make a way for worship so that you no longer have to be distressed. You don't need to be distressed by deceit in this world because the truth teller has come and he's provided a way for worship. Let us pray for that. God and Father, very briefly, we want to pray to you and give you thanks for this psalm. It does not start in easy places. It doesn't say easy things but it does pave an easy road for us to know that we need not be deceived any longer, that the thread of deception that wove its way through the garden, through the uh, killing of uh, the uh, son of Adam and Eve, and through uh, the wickedness of generations, and through the flood, and through generations and generations of people, all the way through our heart, that same thread led through the cross of Jesus Christ. He died once for all. Father, he was not deceived. He saw things clearly. Lord, we so often are deceived. We pray that you would help us in our deception, Lord, uh, that it would be crucified to us. And Lord, that we could put our trust wholly in the name of Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would lead this congregation towards worship over the next few weeks. Lord, that as we take a look at these Psalms of Ascent, that you, by the power of your spirit and word, would allow us to ascend into worship. Father, it is a little perplexing that this is the place that you would start these Psalms. Uh, But Lord, we trust you. Father, convince us of the deception that is out there, that is in here. And Lord, let us know that we are saved from all deception, all death through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray your mighty blessing on our time of worship in the name of Jesus. Amen.